Well, thank you, dear sisters. What a sweet, uh, sweet ministry. Well, our sermon text this morning is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. Let me read that for us. We'll pray and uh, get to work. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. But to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Father, we gather uh, as the sheep of your pasture. You are good shepherd, and we trust that you'll lead us again to fertile, fertile ground and still waters that we may be refreshed by the Spirit. So you help, you help us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, well, this year, from really the first part of this year, I've been struggling through something. I, I don't know anything other than to call it a spiritual depression. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones's book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures, is helping get my mind and heart right to try to kickstart some grace again. Uh, the good doctor hardly normalizes depression gives no room for this modern notion of victimhood as virtue. He gives no purchase to moralistic self-care that is peddled virtually everywhere around us. Basically, it's a pastoral kick in the pants. More importantly, uh, Jones drew my attention, especially to Hebrews 12. So I've been meditating on that a good bit lately and wrestling with it. And so between that and my wife Amy's consistent, love-saturated, Christ-centered encouragement and exhortation, I hope to work some thoughts out loud uh, with you uh, this morning. They're the first fruits of, uh, after a, a season of prayerful whining and immature moping and pious pouting. We're going to key off Hebrews 12, verse 11, we're going to explore its relationship to the broader context, more specifically verses 3 through 11, and we just don't have time to read all of that, so hopefully uh, you can catch up if you're not familiar with that passage. And We want to just ask some questions of the text and, and answer them from the text, and, and, and then I, I want to, at the end, sneak into verses 12 and 13 for some really abbreviated uh, application First question really is, what is divine discipline? What, what did the author mean in verse 11 by all discipline? It's the Greek word, padeia. We get our pedagogy words from that. In, in verse 4 of this passage, he reminded the church folk that they had not shed blood. In other words, they had not died in their striving against sin. And taking in the scope of Hebrews and the immediate context, sin in that verse must mean apostasy, leaving Christ. And so he has said 
that the church folk had not yet become martyrs in their battle against apostasy. And until they did die, they must receive the Lord's discipline to remain faithful to Christ. So here is perhaps a working definition. Divine discipline is the lifelong circumstantial measures that God ordains, allows, however that might work out, to keep us from leaving Christ. Divine discipline is the lifelong, you have not yet shed blood, so lifelong until you die, circumstantial, so the things in our lives, people and places and experiences, the circumstantial measures God ordains to keep us from leaving Christ. Nothing in our lives is neutral. God uses every loss, every pain, every disappointment to expose the precariousness of our sin and the preciousness of Christ. You probably know Hebrews chapter 11. Those are some examples of circumstantial measures God took to keep the faithful in Christ. God disciplines us to keep us running after Jesus who is at the throne of God. It's verses 1 and 2. So the next question I want to ask and maybe answer is, why is it so sorrowful? Right? That's what he says. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sor- sorrowful. Why is that? Why is divine discipline so sorrowful? We have our theology and we have our confessions about God's sovereignty and He's working out all things for good, and he's going to complete this work. We know all of that. And yet it seems so sorrowful. I think divine discipline is sorrowful because it seems to be something it's actually not. It it seems to be permanent and purposeless. This word in verse 11 for it seems, Greek word dakeo, it means what appears to be true to the senses, what appears to be absolute on the surface. You church historians will know well uh, an early church heresy called docetism. That's where this word comes from. And docetism professed that Jesus only appeared, he only seemed to be human, but he was not actually much less fully so. And with the, a real strong adversative, we smart guys, uh, not we, but smart guys say, it seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. And so he is, he is pitting sorrow against joy. In other words, there is no joy, but only sorrow. Sorrow replaces joy. There seems to be no silver lining. It's painfully debilitating because there is no seeming resolution to the discipline. It seems to be something on the surface that it's actually not. When enduring the Lord's discipline, we assume that this is our life. 
from now on. Right? The Lord's thumb will heretofore be unrelenting. There is no apparent end in sight, and we lament with Asaph. Psalm 77, has God forgotten to be gracious or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion and Asaph reasoned? Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Why is divine discipline so sorrowful? It's because it seems so permanent and we reason maybe God has changed, at least towards me. It seems. Well, now here's another question. What is the nature of faith? And that may seem a little bit of a detour because faith isn't mentioned in the text, but bear with me. We'll get back uh, to the interstate. What is the nature of faith? Despite our inclinations, God would not have his children live in perpetual despair, and depression. Despite our inclinations, God would not have us live that way. There is a world that insists we live that way. Dr. Jones said, in a sense, a depressed Christian is a contradiction in terms. And he is a very poor recommendation for the gospel. When Jesus shared his full joy, John 15... When Jesus shared his full joy with his followers, Jesus wasn't kidding. He wasn't being sentimental. And so we better not stiff-arm something Jesus intends to give us. And that will require faith. You know well, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the author of Hebrews defined faith as the assurance of what is being hoped for The conviction of things not being seen. So faith requires organizing our minds and our hearts and our wills around what is unseen. Trusting our lives to what is not obvious. Paul agreed with that. We look at the things, not at the things which are seen but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Or maybe better yet, we are about trusting who is accomplishing what isn't always obvious. Peter agreed, and though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with inexpressible Joy full of glory. So the whole Christian life is entrusting ourselves and our eternity to someone we have never seen as though we have seen him. It's all an exercise of faith. And God's discipline can be all-consuming, right? We can easily spend every spare moment thinking about it, talking about it, tweeting about it, posting about the discipline itself, 
And if we are not careful, sympathy will become an idol. Sympathy will become an idol. There is a better way. It is the way of faith. In all divine discipline, God is accomplishing unseen at the moment eternal purposes through only seen at the moment temporary sorrow. You tracking? In all divine discipline, God is accomplishing unseen eternal purposes through seen, only seen, temporary sorrow. And despite what at the time seems true on the surface, what seems so permanent, what appears to be meaningless, faith sharpens focus on what is not seen in the immediate circumstances. God designs our scars as windows to look through by faith with heart eyes. They are not pieces of art that we stare at with our physical eyes. Faith sees God's discipline for what it is, not what it might appear to be. Faith refuses to believe what we or others are telling ourselves but we tell ourselves what God has promised. Okay. So then, what then is unseen about divine discipline that you and I have to trust despite what our eyes see, what our emotions dictate, what our minds think? See the connection? What then are the... What, what is unseen... In the discipline. What is unseen about that that you and I have to trust despite all the evidence that we're convincing ourselves of in the moment? A few things. What, what, what unseen truth can only be seen with eyes of the heart through faith? The first is this. Divine discipline is always fatherly. The author spent verses 5 to 10 emphasizing the fatherly nature of God's discipline. Discipline, rightly done, is a gesture of love and of the assurance of sonship. He quotes Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 in verses 5 and 6, and the author said that we know that we know this intuitively by our relationship with our earthly fathers. It's verse 9. Our earthly fathers do the best we can. And we know this intuitively that it's a gesture of love. right? I mean, how many of us, some of us have reached the age where we look back on our dad's discipline and you and I ask, have you ever, you've asked yourself this, where would I have been if dad hadn't taught me that? While I was complaining and rolling my eyes and shuffling my feet, Dad was loving. Loving us as sons and daughters. I'm helping coach Byron's baseball team this year. and Can you guess which player I 
pay the most attention to and which one I'm most hard on, the one I'm most interested in getting better? Tim. To be honest, I nitpick him a little too much. Now, of course, we fathers don't always get it right. Many times we go too far. Other times we don't go far enough. And in fact, the author says our best efforts are still limited in time and scope. They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. Knowing that no amount of discipline can ever change our child's heart, but the author's point is that we instinctively recognize and appreciate and respond to good earthly fatherhood as fallible as it is. And he asks, well, how much more then should we respond to God's fatherly care of us? We have a heavenly father who knows exactly which branch to prune, where to prune it. He knows exactly how far to go exactly where and how much pressure to apply. Psalm 103, 14, he he knows our form and he remembers that we are but dust. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. God knows just how far to discipline us. And it may not feel like it in the moment. It may not seem like it in the moment. But by faith, we rejoice that God is exercising his fatherly care to keep us from leaving Christ. So what is unseen in the moment? This is is a fatherly move of God. Secondly, what's unseen in the moment? Discipline, the Lord's divine discipline, it's always fatherly, and it is always formative, and never merely punitive. Discipline is always formative, never merely punitive. Now, if you're like me, you need an IV drip of this refreshed every day. Since God is our perfect Father, He is always conforming us to His nature. So that, verse 10 we may share in his holiness. What does that look like? What does it look like to share in the holiness of God? What that looks like in real life is conformity to the image of his son, Romans 8. The more like Christ we become in our mind and in our will and in our affections, the less we will want to leave him. Why would we? Why would we ever? My reflex in seasons of divine discipline is to assume God is simply punishing me. Have you thought that? He he just wants me miserable in my sin. And and my inner Eliphaz pipes up. Oh, Job, according to what I've seen, Job, those who plow wickedness and those who sow trouble harvest it. Similarly, you remember this in John chapter 9? Jesus' disciples assumed congenital blindness. The man was blind from birth. Congenital blindness was a direct consequence of sin, and they had some kind of category of prenatal sin. Whose sin? Was it, was it him or his parents? What, in the, what kind of sin was he committing in the womb 
that would have caused him to be born blind. We're like that. I don't have any other category. This must be just God simply just punishing me for the sake of doing it. Most certainly, our sin invites divine discipline. Absolutely. And the Lord often allows sin's consequences to take their course. And especially so when he's the one holding the reins of those consequences. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Yahweh has disciplined me, but he has not given me over to death. Psalm 118. That word discipline, that Greek word padeia, aims at training, it aims at instruction rather than sheer punishment. God never punishes his children for the sheer pleasure of it. God is never on a power trip to make us grovel. He he never punishes us to foment a servile fear in us. Dear brother and sister, God never rages against us. Discipline always involves pain, loss, and obviously the consequences of sin. But they are all means to a holy end, an eternally holy end. 1 Corinthians 11, but when we are judged, we are disciplined, same word, by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Those who, Revelation 3, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Through divine discipline, God is saving us from ourselves and from the world and from the devil. He's keeping us with Christ. Lord's discipline, what is unseen in the moment, it's always fatherly, it's always formative, never merely punitive. A third unseen reality that we just have to believe is that discipline is holy fitness. You see that? Obviously, fitness is not my spiritual gift. But as God's children, we are all members of the Lord's gym. In fact, that word for trained in verse 11 Gumnatsa, it's where we get our gem words. He's likely sort of reprising the image of verse 1, running this race. The noun form of this word means to be stripped, naked, to be bare. Divine discipline is God's invitation into this spiritual gym where he lays bare our spiritual weaknesses and he exposes our spiritual flab And the sense and the tense of this verb stresses our responsibility in this discipline. We are to exercise the muscles he is demanding to be worked out as the Spirit commands. We don't don't try to just merely wait out the discipline. You know the old joke about what the Calvinist says after he falls down the stairs. I'm glad that's over. No, no, we, we don't, we're not just simply just waiting out the discipline until it takes its course, using God's sovereignty and providence as a crutch or an excuse and go on about our lives. God is not going to do the exercise for us. He brings us into the gym. 
the, the Christ life, whereby the Spirit we obey the trainer, actively exercising faith, prayerfully engaging our minds, biblically pressing our hearts and our wills to absorb all that the Lord has for us in the discipline. What about this sin do I love so much? And, and, and who have I offended by it? What about this loss do I fear so much? What worldly wisdom am I heeding too much? What about Jesus am I not seeing or trusting? What, what part of Christ's character is God forming in me? What idols is he toppling in my heart? Just as trainers come along weak and out of shape slobs to help us towards strength and health, as it were, the Spirit spots us when God loads the weight on the bar and through his divine discipline, God is forming sons of Adam into sons of God. It is holy fitness. A fourth reality, unseen reality that we've just got to believe in the moment is that discipline is holy farming. We get, we get a little bit of whiplash because the author switches metaphors, I mean, just on a dime here. He went from the analogy of fitness to the analogy of farming. And he says, those who train themselves to benefit from divine discipline are like fertile fruit trees. I wonder if he has Psalm 1 in mind. Yielding plump fruit every season. Now, uh, the scriptures and interpreting the scriptures, it's always more than the sum of the definitions of the words. But I I do want to, if you might uh, allow me, uh, if you don't, you're still stuck hearing it. Uh, Drilling down on some of these words, because I think think, think it matters here in this phrase. In verse 11, afterwards, or you might have later. That's the vocabulary of hope, isn't it? which is the substance of faith. We want to ask, after what? Later than what? What is he talking about? Well, after the painful season of discipline. In the moment, it seems so sorrowful because it appears to be unending. But faith requires we trust the Lord's word. There will be an afterwards. There will be a later The discipline is not permanent. And in a greater sense, at our resurrection, the the ultimate later, if you will, we will find our whole life was this school, one long season of God's fatherly discipline. He was constantly preparing us to behold and reflect and embody Christ's glory ourselves. So despite what it seems to be in the moment, there will be an afterwards And the author says, it, the discipline, it yields. You probably easily translate this verb, is yielding, it's present tense. What, what the Lord produces in divine discipline is spiritual fruit that keeps yielding. The spiritual muscles that God strengthens will always keep their tone. The discipline is not permanent, but the fruit is. 
The discipline is seasonal, but the fruit is year-round. In fact, it will be eternal. God uses all discipline as a perennial means of grace to keep us from leaving Christ so that we would join him around the throne of God. He refers to this fruit as peaceful. It's an interesting, you wonder why, why that? Why, why use that adjective? The disi- because the discipline is anything but peaceful. It's chaotic, painful, confusing. It's sorrowful. But when the Lord is done with it, we will know peaceful, his peaceful purposes. If you've been whitewater rafting, if you have, you know that the rapids, if you're in a certain class of things. They're uh, nerve-wracking. They're scary, and they require digging and vigilance and weight shifting and precise paddling, and and you you just can't float your way through them. But you can see the long stretch of gentle current beyond them, and, and, and we just have to dig through this section, and we'll enjoy the peaceful stretch, and then we've learned something that will help us through the next section of rapids. Likewise, we we trust the Lord's word. Peaceful fruit is not far, not far away. Despite what we're trying to convince ourselves of in the moment, peaceful fruit is not far away. But we can't coast to it. It's anything but peaceful until we get there. And so we keep training and we keep digging into his word with calloused knees. And it's ultimately the fruit is righteousness, isn't it? And Verse 11, I, by righteousness, I, I don't think he means Christ's forensic imputed righteousness given to us at justification. I, I think he must mean the practical, experiential outworking of Christ's righteousness in our lives, conformity to the Christ life. So despite what it seems, we must trust God's discipline is sowing a seed in us. He's uprooting unrighteousness from us. He is fertilizing Christ's righteousness in us. And that's what we want, isn't it? Don't we want the experiential joy of Christ's righteousness? Where we think the right things and we love the right things and we say the right things. Don't we we want that? Just as soil has to go through trauma to be fertile, has to go through violence to be fertile, has to be churned up so so the soil of our hearts have to be churned up so that fresh seeds of Christ's righteousness will take root and blossom. And God never has a failed crop. Well, if you don't, uh, let me wander through verses 12 and 13 somewhat quickly here with, with, I hope, faith recalibrated with the eyes of our heart directed to God's unseen purposes, how then do we start benefiting from discipline rather than being defeated by it? How can we, verse 3, how, how can we avoid growing weary and fainting in heart? And I, I just want to carve out the imperatives, the commands of the text, three of them. The first of being verse 3, consider him Christ who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary, fainting in heart. That that word consider to to carefully deliberate the suffering Jesus himself endured from sinners like us. We get our word analog from it. If, If the sinless Jesus 
Hebrews 5.8, learned obedience from what he suffered. How in the world, how much more will you and I who are sinful? The author's not saying this. The author isn't saying, now look here, bucko. Jesus had it far worse than you, so just suck it up and stop whining. That's worldly counsel, isn't it? We often say, well, it could be worse. That's never helpful, is it? So, so the author isn't saying, look, Jesus had it worse, so just suck it up. He's holding out Jesus and his endurance as the par excellence of sonship. If the road to glory for the author and perfecter of our faith, verse 2, had to go through the cross, then how much more for his brothers in that faith? So stop thinking Maxwell, so much and dwelling so much on your discipline and suffering, what is seen, start thinking deeply and prayerfully about Christ and his suffering, what is unseen, at least to us. Stop accusing God of ignorance. We say that, don't we? God just doesn't know what it's like to suffer like this. God doesn't know what I'm going through. And the author of Hebrews says, you don't have the foggiest idea of what Christ went through. You don't know what God has gone through. (laughs) So stop accusing God of ignorance. Start confessing his fatherhood. And soon, by faith, our soul will strengthen. So consider Christ and his suffering. Secondly, from verse 5, don't treat the Lord's discipline lightly. Verse 5, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Have you have your children ever shrugged off your discipline? Have they ever rolled their eyes and acted like it's inconsequential? They come by that naturally, by the way. We all reach that age when we say, oh, 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 that's what dad and mom were talking about. We want glory and we want comfort and we want ease without any of the discipline. We want the sculpture without the chisel. We want the fruit without the pruning. We want humility without the humiliation. Shortcuts to holiness because we think we deserve it. Dear brothers and sisters, to disregard God's discipline, to shrug it off, is to say we'd rather not be his sons, isn't it? So God says, I discipline those who I love. I discipline my sons. And if we say, I don't care to be trained by it, then we're saying, well, I would just rather not be one of your sons. But we bear the family name, the Trinitarian name, and therefore we rejoice that God makes us sons, daughters, if you will, fitting of the name. So in seasons of discipline, we don't retreat from God. We lean further into his work through his word and sacrament. We force ourselves to trust what isn't seen, training ourselves unto righteousness. Lastly, hang in there, thank you. From verses 12 and 13, we we strengthen our fellow travelers. The the author here quotes or alludes to Proverbs 4.26 and Isaiah 35.3 and Isaiah 
the prophet glories in the coming messianic kingdom and God's people, essentially he's saying, you just got to hang in there. Isaiah called the covenant community to help one another persevere in faith until Yahweh comes. You see verses 12 and 13, strengthen hands that are weak, knees that are feeble, make straight paths for your feet. For what purpose would you need strong hands and strong knees? What sort of person needs straight paths so that you don't twist your ankle or turn a foot or twist a knee? If you're traveling by foot. Travelers need this. God's people are sojourners. We're walkers. Of course, these physical terms illustrate spiritual realities. After all, God be praised, a bum knee will not keep us from Christ. It may seem like a desert now, but there's a road just ahead. Isaiah called it the highway of holiness. It's a narrow road but God paved it with Christ's blood for his sons. We may limp for a stretch, but we've just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other in faith. Our discipline is part of keeping the holy caravan on this narrow road. Dear brothers and sisters, we don't have to get home quickly. We just have to get home together. Church is not for the strong. It's for the weak. And staying with Christ is a congregational effort. Do you have shaky spiritual hands and and weak spiritual knees and anxious heart? Do you have that? Draw near to your brothers and sisters who exalt Christ more than your Facebook friends who commiserate and exalt you. Sympathy can become an idol. After knee surgery, we've had a couple. The doctor gets you moving the joint as soon as possible. You've got to get up, otherwise it's going to be worse for you. Likewise, the author of Hebrews says, you want to get out of this, get the most out of this discipline, start strengthening the joints. Start working them. Start, Start strengthening others and you'll find yourself strengthened. Do you know someone who's fallen to the back of the pack? Oh, come alongside them and put your arm around them and prayerfully encourage them and, and tell them, be strong and don't fear. Behold, our God is with us. He refers to healing in verse 3. We heal them. Just one more prayer. Let's, let's just pray one more time. One more scripture. Just hang it. One more taste of bread and wine. And we heal one another. Oh, let's stay with Christ, beloved, because he is most certainly staying with us. I close with William Cooper's famous, one of his famous stanzas. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and she'll break with blessings on your head. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we bow before your throne, uh, at least in heart, and pray that you would commend your word to us, even as we commend one another to your word. Would you be so faithful to fertilize again, bring us 
uh, ever faithfully deeper into your gym and sow more seeds in our hearts, and may we train ourselves for righteousness, all for Christ's sake. Amen.